I'm someone who loves trying out different makeup looks, but doesn't really wear much on a daily basis, so I like to focus on making sure I have high quality staples. And whether you like a fresh face, full glam, or somewhere in between, you've probably seen Thrive Cosmetics Viral Tubing Mascara. I've certainly seen it everywhere, you know the one in the turquoise tube? So that mascara, along with all of Thrive Cosmetics beauty products, are certified 100% vegan and cruelty-free, which I look for in makeup, and they've got excellent quality to match. And something I didn't know from all the mascara videos I've seen is that for every product sold, Thrive Cosmetics donates either that same product, another product that is needed more, or a monetary donation. They've worked with over 500 nonprofits to help with a wide range of causes like supporting cancer survivors, people experiencing homelessness, education access, and so much more. Knowing that makes me feel even better about using their products. And I do enjoy using them. Like I said, I like having high quality staples, and so my favorites are products that are multi-purpose, like the Brilliant Eye Brightener. It comes in a bunch of colors, and I like using them as eyeliner, eyeshadow, and even highlighter. Thrive Cosmetics is luxury beauty that gives back. Right now, you can get an exclusive 20% off your first order at thrivecosmetics.com thrive. That's Thrive Cosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S, dot com slash thrive for 20% off your first order. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine, erstwhile monk turned traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world that ours is not a loving God and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. I came into ultramarathoning. My now husband gifted me an entry to the American River 50 miler when I turned 40. And that was like the absolute, he now I think totally regrets having done that. I became completely obsessed with the trail running and then ultra running community. So yeah, I've I've been running a few ultras consistently uh, the last few years. It's great. It's a bunch of just delightful oddballs. And I think it's just, it's just like being a writer too in that way. And it's, it's great. I haven't bitten off the farthest. I'm going to try and do hundred K this year in California, but the farthest I've topped out is a little over 50 miles so far. So. Good day. Good people. My name is Brad King and you are listening to the downtown riders jam podcast, which is part of the solid listen podcast network. One of the nicest places you will find in the hellscape that we call the web. We are coming to you from deep inside the jam bunker. And on the day of this recording, it is like San Diego here in Pittsburgh. It is like 75 degrees. It's beautiful. Uh, Here's the only fuckery that happened. All of the power went out. Um, Only 140 people lost power. It's everybody in my neighborhood. And the fun part about that was literally had just started an interview and, uh, had said at the start, you know, I feel like the infrastructure in America is starting to fall apart a little bit. And I shit you not. It is like lightning bolt struck. All the power went out in my neighborhood. So I feel like I need to walk door to door and apologize to everybody here in Pittsburgh, at least where I'm at. But the weather's nice. So we're going to go sit outside. So we are coming to you from deep inside the jam bunker. But in just a few minutes, we're going to be outside the jam bunker. Today on the program, this came across my desk, right? I got this email. It was like, hey, this writer lives in Virginia Beach. 
ultra marathoner has nothing to do with what she does. Um, and my girlfriend and I were literally planning a trip to Virginia beach. And I used to be an ultra marathoner before I took up Olympic weightlifting. And my girlfriend is currently training for an ultra marathon. And I was like, I don't even care about the book. I want to interview this person. And this person is Kelly Sokol and her book is breach. And I had the opportunity to read the book and it's fucking fantastic. It's amazing. I'm so glad I have her on the show. As you know, I normally don't read before I interview people because I don't want that to um, taint the interview. I want this to be a conversation among writers, but I read this one and I mean, it's so good. So good, in fact, uh, that I had to edit me fawning over her and this book uh, because I did that several times. So she's the author of Breach and The Unprotected. And The Unprotected was featured on NPR and named one of Book Riot's 100 must-read books of pregnancy, childbirth, and motherhood. Uh, Pushcart Prize nominee. It's a big deal. MFA. Her work has appeared all over the place. She teaches creative writing at the Muse Writer Center down there in Virginia Beach. And when she's not reading, writing, or parenting, uh, she dreams in color of the mountains. And she can often be found running in the backcountry. And she resides in Virginia with her family. And as I've said, like, uh, if you haven't ultra marathon, it's hard to explain. And we talked a little bit about this at the top of the show, but a lot of this doesn't get edited in. Like it's a, it is a weird group of people. And I mean, weird in the best sense. Um, it is a community and it's not that different from writing. Uh, and so it was just, it was really a joy. And I think you're going to enjoy this conversation. Um, she's awesome. So you were listening to the jam. Right, we got three shows. This is the jam, and we got two new short form programs, jam sessions, where I talk to nonfiction authors about an issue that's impacting the world today, and then our weird ass hybrid storytelling Q and A called After Party. All of those are on this channel. You can help us out by telling your friends about us. Peer pressure works. Um, peer annoyance works even better. So keep telling them about us, or you can leave us a review over at Apple Podcasts if you have one of them fancy. Apple phones or iPads. And if you don't, head over to the Writer's Jam Facebook page and leave us a review there. We also got a website, thewritersjam.com. We got book reviews. You can click on our bookshop link and buy any of the books of people on the program. You can sign up for our newsletter. You can also subscribe to the Solid Listen Podcast Network subscription for $4.99 a month. Uh, or you can support the whole network. We got 12 shows, 11 others besides me. By clicking on the Patreon button. In both of those, you'll get early episodes, commercial-free episodes, and on the Patreon, you get a lot of bonus content. So it's well worth the uh, $4 to $5 a month to support everybody. And like I said, Malls and Nicole have put together 12 amazing pop culture shows, and I think you'll really enjoy them. Well, for now, I just want to say I appreciate you guys stopping by the bunker to spend some time with us particularly if it is like it is today here, wherever you are, and it's beautiful. I appreciate you taking some time to spend time with us. For now, sit back and enjoy my conversation with Kelly Sokol. No, I'm originally from Omaha, Nebraska. Yeah, right, right, right there on the, you know, we used to call it the staple on the map, not that anybody has maps anymore. 
Um, and but I only lived there kind of on and off. I was we moved around a ton, my family growing up. So we'd always kind of end up back in Nebraska every few years. But I went to college in North Carolina, uh, worked in DC for a while. Oh, we'll get to all that. We're gonna be in down here. For a down while. here. <laughs> yeah. So you're so uh, do you have brothers and sisters there? I did. I did. My younger brother died when he was a teenager. Oh, I'm sorry to hear that. Yeah, I know he was an excellent human being, and uh, we were kind of each other's constants. You know, we moved around all the time, and so we were pretty, pretty thick. Yeah. What were you like as a kid? Uh, I was a real pain in the rear, um, and I was people not... can't see, but you made a face when I asked that question. So the, the quote in my family is, and it's terrible, my brother and I were very close, but I was a pretty rotten older sister, I think at times. And when he got sick, um, he had Hodgkin's lymphoma and he's like, I've survived Kelly all these years. Like I should, I should be able to survive cancer. So if that gives you any kind of insight into what kind of big sister I was, yeah, pretty much. But what kind of, like, what kind of kid were you? Like, were you outdoorsy? Were you, did you keep to yourself? Like, what'd you do? I was definitely very outdoorsy. I've always been more comfortable kind of outside and in a wild space than um, inside. Uh, but, and I did keep to myself. I was kind of that typical, like I'm an introvert with extrovert adaptations, apparently, you know, I am always happiest kind of being quiet and in my head and having a book or a notepad. But um, when I get connected with people, it's like, that's that kind of wonderful, intense energy, but I can't do small talk to save my soul. <laughs> and what did your parents do there? Um, was it like military stuff? Like, what did they do? No, uh, my parents met working overnight in a grocery store oh. and my dad was in college. My mom was working for an insurance company. And then he graduated with an engineering degree after my brother and I were born. And they just sort of started climbing this wild corporate ladder and taking every new opportunity that came his way. And we were all just along for an awesome ride. So it's not a huge surprise that now a lot of my friends are either former military brats or their military folks and spouses themselves. So could we yeah. all share that? Like, you know, the roots don't run too deep in any one place. Yeah. And I think that's, uh, that, I mean, that was obviously where I went, right? Like you're moving around. Like I'm always interested why people do that when it's non-military. Uh, yeah. But that sounds like a healthy reason. Like he was like, I don't know, it was career family. Yeah, I know. And it was that idea that, that my folks were really hardcore about. We would all do each thing together. You know, we would all be in the same town together and that kind of thing, as opposed to, you know, somebody being separate for a couple of years. Um, and so I think it definitely, it created a, a very unique bond um, with all of us. I'm sure my brother and me. Oh, I'm sure. Was it hard, like, how old, like, were you in school when this stuff was happening or was that sort of before you were in school? Oh, we were moving around. That started uh, forever. I mean, we were, I think my brother, the story was they loaded us up in a van. My brother was like three months old. Oh, shit. Uh, yeah. I mean, and I think it was, this was the, you know, early 80s. So he was probably like in nothing secure. No car know, seat. No. <laughs> no, we moved around. Um, yeah. It was I, like, I don't remember. I can see pictures and remember the first house we lived in in Omaha, but we were on the East Coast before I started really remembering any of the places that we lived. And we was that were, hard? Did, was that hard for you? I, um, I guess, but I didn't know any different. So it yeah. wasn't, yeah. I didn't have anything else to compare it to. Um, but yeah, it gets really awkward when you are like the introverted kid trying to go and make new friends like every two or three years. Um, 
but I guess you realize that you can do that. And now my kids complain because they'll have been at the same school for 12 years, you know, and they're like, you know, everybody is really small. I'm like, well, I guess I swung the pendulum (laughs) from my childhood and I'm giving you that, that very stable, maybe two in one place childhood. You know, if you love them and they feel safe, I kind of feel like it doesn't matter which one they get. I think so, too. We, yep. and that, all we have to do is make different mistakes, right? than our parents did. Right. <laughs> Just do different things. Right. They, it, it sounds like as you were moving around, even if it was hard to be in new schools, like you guys had a, it was a family unit. Like you guys were not, it wasn't like dad and mom were off doing something and you guys were fending for yourself. No, very much. We were very much like a core kind of, core team so that was that was great that was the only thing i knew yeah uh, yeah and that's also weird about like childhood too like adults stress about stuff and i always tell them like kids only know the one thing yeah it's true <laughs> not till they get older they were like but well, i was hmm nobody else did that now let's compare yeah yeah except for that you find out lots of other people did you know those kinds of things yeah yeah, no, you think you're the only one in so many areas, I think, of your life, and it's always a mistake. Like, we're not nearly, or I'm not nearly as special as I'd like to think I am or that I worry that I am. There's always a yeah. community out there, whether it's the ultra crazies or, you know, people who moved, or, you know, kind of nomadic their whole lives. So as you, I guess the time that it probably does get hard is, like, in that middle school, high school range, like, that, you know, then it's, I think, harder to be in a new place as a kid or whatever like did that happen to you or was that like "Eh, yeah and it was fun yeah but both my brother and I begged to um be able to stay in one place for high school and it it worked out a little differently for for both of us that I there was a boarding school in a town a little town in New Jersey where we had lived for about four years the longest we'd ever lived anywhere and my parents had some good friends there. I babysat some of their kids. And I was like, please, can I apply to a school where I can just stay? And they're like, the only way we're going to agree to this is if it's this school in Blairstown with these families that we know right around that can kind of parent you without us. And my brother did the same thing, but back, they were back in Nebraska by the time he was in high school. And it was, he was like, I, I'll go to an all men's boarding school. Like, just let me stay. <laughs> that boards during the week was, let me just stay um in one spot so we were so lucky that that was even yeah. an option but um I, I i moved through t- two different middle schools and i was like i just can't and yeah. especially again is um i watch my children are teenagers now and i mean i love their energy i love watching everything but you couldn't pay me to go back and be 13 to 16 again it's just tough and then especially when you're kind of trying to reinvent yourself all the time and yeah and make yourself fit in a new place i have said this for years i think the hardest time for any human being to be alive is a girl 13 to like 16 or 17 i just think that's the hardest there's so many all the forces are happening and and then it's happening in this like emotional cauldron of puberty and it's just it's hard man that shit is hard and it's a miracle any of us make it out yeah adolescence i think what kind of kid were you like in that high school, junior high? Like, were you still outdoorsy or were you starting to like, were you, did you read a lot? Like I was trying to, you know, we all put ourselves in boxes, like in the breakfast club, which one were you? I know. I, uh, I, I was definitely still outdoorsy, which worked very well with the, you know, 1990s New England, like crunchy aesthetics. So that was great. Actually, mm. that was like a, something that I brought with me that was actually 
you know, semi cool. Yeah. Um, I've, I've always been having a, just a, my nose in a book any minute I can. Um, but I became an athlete in high school, which was a humongous surprise to me. <laughs> and um, what'd you do? I played soccer, basketball, and lacrosse. And I just fell in love with soccer from day one. And so that was something that was, again, like, I mean, I played soccer younger, but it was just. Yeah. Picking the ball on a field. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I played I that soccer too. Yeah, being part of a team, I think was the greatest gift of like, we had preseason, we had tryouts and it's like, you sort of started school. So we played soccer in the fall, um, with a couple people you at least recognize and who recognized you at the end of the day. So that was, that was big for me. Yeah. Well, and I have told people, like I was a baseball player and I told you before the show, I edited out all the baseball, but this one may stay in. I, because I have told people I, as an adult, making friends is really hard, except like I'll go join a softball team. I'll go do Olympic lifting. Like when I was running, I joined a run club and suddenly you're around a bunch of people that have the same interest that you do. Yeah, absolutely. It's such, a, 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 it would be my advice to anybody at any age, you know, if you have to move around or you're changing, find something you're interested in and dive in because that's how you're going to find your people. Yeah. And like I think finding your like writing community can be such a lifesaver um, and they exist in so many places. I just have no idea. I think it's harder to find a writing community than it is to find a local running club, right? Like, For sure. For you sure. know, you can only do meetups so many times before you're like, this is weird. This one's weird. This is a weird group. <laughs> so you're doing the sports stuff. You got your nose in a book. Like you're in high school. Are you thinking about like, what's coming next for you or are you just sort of like oh shit i get to be in a place for a few years let's just have a good time a little bit of both i like i was so stoked to just know that i mean i'd go home in the summer and go home for breaks but it was like i was returning to the same place year after year so that was just thrilling for me um but no i mean being in that it was really like again it was such a gift to be in like a college prep type environment because i had people who they were just into you flexing your brain and finding the things that inspired you. And I wish everybody could have that educational experience. And so it was like, I didn't know what I necessarily wanted to do like in college or post high school, but um, I knew what lit me up and I knew the courses I could barely muscle through, even with all of the help of like really dedicated teachers. And so I was able to explore. What were those things that lit you up? Oh, I mean, it was, it was writing, it was languages. It was, I mean, I'm that just absolute cliche of the, I, I like the, I love anything that my, my parents would say, like, doesn't have a right answer. <laughs> you know, anything that I could reason my way through or argue my way through um, and things that help me understand the world around me yeah. with their different shades of me, that was what I've always gravitated to. The things like physics that make the world actually move, uh, Fortunately, nobody's, you know, expecting me to build a bridge or a tunnel or anything because it would be a, it'd be a real disaster. Do you think that you like retreated into books because you guys did move around so much? Like, was that a thing? Uh, There's definitely, I mean, who doesn't want to escape? Uh, Because I mean, I think about the books that I loved the most, like, I'll never forget reading The Bridge to Terabithia when I was in like fourth grade. (laughs) And I didn't realize how important that book would come become like later in my life, but it was like this idea of this magical place where just you and your best friend could go and no other 
nothing else can intrude. I mean, I think that's so magical. And I think other books that I that resonated with me early on, like I loved like Jane Eyre and this idea of this girl who's, you know, it's very dark and moody and she's out and trying to figure things out. That was probably more when I was, you know, like more emo teenage, you know, yeah. year. But yeah, because you always have something to hold on to when you have a book in your hand and you have a world. And no matter what's going on out here in the real world, it can, you know, if you're reading the right book, it doesn't, it doesn't matter so much. So yeah, I mean, I think that was something that, and it's funny because my parents never censored anything I read, but they weren't particularly, I don't think they really have the free time. They were working and parenting and stuff, but they never stopped me from sitting, you know, with my nose in a book and they never questioned what I was reading. And um, I think that was great. Whereas now, like I'll give a little, not so much now with my kids at their age, but a little side eye. <laughs> there were certain things that they would pick up, but I was like, it's a book, enjoy it. But I would laugh and go, hmm, also I wonder if they'll ask me what this means or they actually know what's going on or, or what yeah. you know. It's more concerning sometimes when they don't. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It mean, either yeah. means they they know it, or they're like, "I'm gonna ask my friends." Both of those are bad. Both of those are bad. Like I'm too embarrassed. Maybe <laughs> like, "Ew, you know what that is?" And then it becomes just this whole group shame spiral. <laughs> you know, now that you've said it, I don't think my parents ever told me not to read a book either. Like I don't remember them. They would like drop me off at the library. We mm -hmm. lived out in the country, country. So when mom would run errands, like I just sit at the library for two hours and come home with a stack of books. And I, I'm sure they looked at them, but I don't recall them doing that. Yeah, no, and I think that's, I mean, everybody has to do what they've got to do, but being able to pick and choose and find the things that interested me, scared me, because I think kids are really good about, they're not into it. They're just going to put it down. And that's, what's funny. Like they're not going to force their way through some book because they think it's cool and they're supposed to be able to read it. It's like, they're like, there's too much good stuff out there. And so, I mean, just realizing what was possible in somebody's imagination to me was the most magical freeing thing as a kid that like, this could come out of somebody's brain. This is so cool. And you can just build it and I can see it and I can smell it and I can taste it. Um, that I was obsessed with this idea of like trying to do that myself. So did you think that you wanted to be a writer then? I knew I wanted to be a writer then, but like yeah. so many other people yeah. that did not seem like a job yeah. or, or, you know, told it was not really a job. Um, I also think I thought you had to be, you know, this mad, incredible genius to be able to do it. And so a lot of it was probably just my internalized, like, who do I think I am that I could actually be a writer? Yeah. Um, but I was always writing. I was always how I wrote just awful poetry in middle school and high school and I love to try to sketch out short stories. And I, I was, you know, it was always how I made sense of the world. So I knew I would always be writing. It just never occurred to me that like somebody would actually yeah. maybe want to read it. I hear that on the show. There's, I think there's been two times that I've had somebody say like, oh no. And it was because their parents were writers. And it's like, yeah, oh, yeah. Model. <laughs> yeah, like, yeah, no, that's a job. And uh, they're idiots. So anybody can do this. Everybody else is, I had the same thing. Like I read voraciously as a kid. And in my head, it was like people living in New York City, like in an apartment writing. And then there was like a building with a bunch of editors who writing. And I was like, I, you know, how the fuck? Do, I'm in Appalachia. How does that? That We don't do that. Yeah. Yeah. That, that was, yeah, I was totally, it was like, I don't know, the internalized imposter syndrome, but also you had this idea. You're exactly right. of like what the New York writer's room 
inevitably looked like and it was like all smoky and wonderful yeah. and everyone berets and head to toe black and I was like I don't fit in there <laughs> yeah I see and in my head they were all in like because I was like a Fitzgerald guy or like an Asimov guy so they're all in like they got jackets you know like cleanly pressed shirts and they are right. like up in the morning with a cigarette and a whiskey and they're just like type 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 and I'm like yeah I gotta go to work man <laughs> and I'm guessing like growing up in Omaha, growing up in Nebraska, even if you moved around, you sort of feel very, that world feels foreign. The stuff you're reading is great, but it feels like it comes from another planet, right? Yeah. And the fact that there is, no matter where you're from, I mean, I've read some incredible books, like you talk about from being from Appalachia, like they're incredible Appalachian writers in the world. They're incredible Nebraskan, right? Like Willa Cather's from there. I mean, it's so funny, but you're right. And like now, with my second book, I find myself actually writing about Nebraska. Yeah, you did. So funny, like, but yes, it, it can be. That's and that's what I didn't realize is that as a kid, that a great setting, especially a setting that becomes a character, it can be anywhere. You just have to make it real for you know, real for the reader. And I, it was so funny when that light bulb goes off that you're like, oh, it doesn't always have to be set here or here. And it's just, but it felt it felt like you said so remote almost like it was on another planet occurring from where where I knew my life to be yeah and for me I you know we didn't move around but my town was 5,000 people it was in the middle of nowhere and like I'd read like that was how I traveled like that yeah. was in my head and I always now I don't know if you felt this way you probably did just based on what you said or some version of it I knew I needed to get out of where I was I'm like I can't stay because I'd read all these things and I was like God damn, this world is, there's a lot out there. I should go see it. Did you have that? A hundred percent. Cause I was like, well, now I know. And especially reading, like, I remember like reading Desert Solitaire and reading some Krakauer books too, that not, it's, so it's the world physically being giant and the natural being giant. But then also, I think reading fiction for me was like my first lesson in empathy. I mean, this idea that I can, it, it's close as I'll get in this lifetime of putting myself in the perspective of somebody whose life I could never live, I could never understand, except for the gift that this writer is giving me. So yeah, I was like, there are so many people to meet and things to see and experience that, um, yeah, just kind of in that small, especially, you know, as a kid or wherever you are, where you don't have as much agency, um, which is probably safe and right. Yeah, that fire to just see and, and kind of consume the world. Yeah, and way. I was always, you know, you know, just talking about your kids, like I, if I go home, I know I can go to like the VFW hall or like there's a pizza place and I'm going to run into 20 people that I've known. And there's a great comfort to that, but they never had that. And not to say they didn't read, they just never had that thing where they were like, I need to get out of here to breathe. Yeah. And I, I find it, I've, I just find that juxtaposition of people interesting. Not, I don't rank them. It's just, if you have it, you, I feel like you were a reader. Yeah, no, I think I think so too. And then, but then there's also got to be something wonderfully comfort, comforting about knowing exactly where you're supposed to be and what you're supposed to be doing at any given moment. So that's probably a nice thing too. Yeah, I mean, it, it must be because they're all very happy. And sometimes I'm like, maybe I shouldn't have done this like untethered, go see the world thing because uh, right. shit, you know, shit. <laughs> but they need us to blow into town and be like listen to what crazy thing we saw this week and they could be like well that's good we'll see you next time yeah. <laughs> when you back down i will say when i send out a little facebook message like 20 or 30 people show up 
right? You know, because it's like, well, the clown's in town. Let's go to the circus. <laughs> <laughs> so you're getting near the end of high school. Uh, do you think you're going to college? Like, is college a thing you're going to do? Or are you sort of making a decision about what's next? No, I was pretty hell-bent on going to college. I did realize really early in high school, like, I, I, am, I am a nerd through and through. And <laughs> I, even the classes that I hated and I struggled, you know, so much through, it was like cracking something open was so powerful for me. And so I knew I kind of did want to stay in school as long as I could probably get away with it. So I was definitely planning on going to college. And, what and again, I was fortunate because my, my dad was the first one He's the second person in his family to have gone to college. My mom, you know, my mom did not. And it was so just to know that that was an opportunity available to me. It was remarkable. And I was going to just leap at it. Yeah. So, and also, I, feel like, I, I don't know. I'm sure there are people who, again, know their passion and they dive right in and they live that writing creative life. And that's incredible. But I also feel like sometimes some of the things that we use in our work, I wouldn't have possibly even experienced or had any relationship idea to come up with it had I not had to kind of do these other things before I really said, okay, I'm going to own what I most want to do yeah. in this world. Sometimes I think those other experiences are a, a gift. It's like they can be frustrating and they can make the road feel longer, but I don't know for me that the intermediate steps weren't maybe as necessary as anything else. So do you like do college visits? Do you do the thing? Like how does, how does the transition happen? Yeah, I did. I visited. It's so funny. My my best friend in high school, she we were in high school together in New Jersey. All she wanted to do was go to Southern schools. All I wanted to do was largely go to Northern schools. And the only school we applied to in common was Wake Forest University in North Carolina. And I ended up going there and she ended up going up to Syracuse. So we completely <laughs> did the opposite um, of what we planned on, which is so funny. It's just one of those things, you know, the college search is, I guess my kids are just about to be in the throes of it. It's so important, but it's also four years of your life and it's about what you're going to do with it, how you're going to apply it. And, and there's so much more life outside of college that like when I didn't get into where I just desperately thought I wanted to go, it was like, I, I remember I got a rejection and I got my acceptance letter on the same day. And I was feeling so petty about the acceptance letter because I didn't get into where I wanted. Meanwhile, my best friend didn't get into where I ended up going to school where she wanted. And it was like, this is so crazy that we're putting all this pressure on this one choice, this one place when, you know, she went and had an incredible few years up in Syracuse and things were great for me down in Winston-Salem and, and on and on. And that was now 25 years ago. <laughs> yeah. All right. We're going to take a quick break and then we're going to come back and we're going to talk about how the sort of journey then moves on into your life and not just childhood. So we'll be back in a second. Are you ready to shop? Rakuten's Big Give Week is back. Get 15% back at hundreds of stores, and it's all happening this week, May 6th to May 13th. It's the perfect time to shop for everything on your list for spring and summer, like clothing, outdoor gear, and travel. I know I'm using this week to stock up on some warmer weather essentials at Ray-Ban and Ulta, and I love that Rakuten even helps me save on travel at sites like Hotels.com. Rakuten really is the best way to shop, and you can save even more by stacking cash back on top of deals. Plus, during Big Give Week, that cash back is bigger than ever. 
With Rakuten, membership is free. And when you sign up and shop today, you get an extra 10% cashback boost. That's an extra 10% cashback on top of the 15% cashback. You won't see higher cashback rates than these. Go to Rakuten.com or download the Rakuten app. R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Shoppers get it. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Martha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. All right. Uh, You just missed a very fun, short conversation about the the trade schools, which we're both a fan of. Um, So you go to Wake Forest. What are you going to study? So I'm going to go study the really bankable political science because oh, that's wow. a marketable degree. I mean, that's so funny. And I remember like telling my parents, they're like, okay. Like, and I said, maybe I'll minor in journalism or creative writing or something. And uh, I ended up double majoring in poli sci and English. Um, mostly because um, Dr. Angelou taught at Wake Forest and to take a class with my Angelou, you had to be an English major. And I'd already been taking just so many English classes anyway that I was like, all right, this is my sign to declare this major so I can take a class with this incredible poet. Um, so that was sort of the, the really deep thought behind my, <laughs> my college majors. Like we knew there was going to be a BA in there somewhere, not any kind of, I mean, I was full of BS, but I was not going to get a BS yeah. degree. Um, so yeah, that was poli sign English. Um, so let's, we're going to talk about the Maya Angelou. So what was that class about? I'm trying to remember, cause it was just, it was like, we got to hear her read and dissect the, you know, dissect poetry. And so it was just, I just remember sitting there like enthralled, um, as she would talk about the imagery that she used, the cadence and the time in the rhythm of her work. And then we read just all kinds of it was prose and poetry that, you know, at that point was not part of the canon or whatever. Yeah. And I think, thank goodness, now it's all so much more is being taught so much more widely. And so it was just this multi-genre class that we were studying her poetry, poetry for contemporaries, as well as this really rich, um, kind of that prosetry, you know, there's that, I think there's that whole vein of of incredible literature that is as much about um, sound and syntax and rhythm as it is about the story or the characters. And, you know, that was my first exposure to that or any kind of um, novels and verse, prose and I had didn't even know that existed. Um, So it was, it was was like, you just sat there in class, like gobsmacked, like I'm sure I just had my mouth just hanging open. Almost all, and everybody in the class is the same way. We're like, we can't believe we're here right now. Yeah. I, all I could think of was like the scene with Indiana Jones when everybody's just like staring at him. I'm like, what was the class? Like, I have no idea. It was Maya Angelou talking. Right? No like, one was jingling. You're just like, yeah. 
Like, who cares what the class is? Like, I get the. The third time we met, she said, you guys can talk. You can answer questions. And she was, she's used to that, that people are just like, we were just in awe. Um, she was an incredible educator as well as, you know, the writer in residence and stuff. So it was a very cool experience. Did you have a moment where you're like, hey, this shit is a job? Or were you yes. like, well, if you're Maya Angelou, this is a job? <laughs> that was, and that was the thing. Because to me, um, I, being, and I was probably a junior by then in college. And so I was like getting into that incredible sweet spot of education where I was taking the classes that I most wanted to be taking. Yeah. And so the professors I was learning from might as well have been like gods anyway. Because I just was like, how do you know all of these things? How have you, you know, how have you dedicated your entire career to like learning this specific thing? So it's, for Maya Angelou to be both an incredible educator as well as a world-class poet. I was like, of course she can, because she's Dr. Angelou, you know, but I didn't see, I didn't see myself as on even remotely a similar plane. So it was both amazing and also a little dispiriting when you're like, well, this is just a reminder. I can't do this stuff. Yeah. Except that she made it the way she talked about her creative, like she made the process of her writing poetry feel very real and human but it was just her work was to me so like otherworldly that yeah it was cool just to feel like my world was colliding in this very small way yeah it's i mean it's i think those are kind of moments have you looked back on that and ever thought like well that did kind of spark something in me or was it just like a moment of like oh that was a cool story that i no, had. It, was both. it was both and it yeah. definitely fled throughout my career i i I cannot write poetry to for any, yeah. I just don't even try, but I love to read it and I love to hear poetry read. And I feel like reading poetry has really informed other work. And so it's reminded me how important just digging into different genres other than what I'm writing in, um, how beneficial that is to my writing for sure. Yeah, my first journalism assignment. In a different way. Yeah, my first journalism assignment, I met Hunter Thompson in Louisville at a Jim Carroll reading. Uh, <laughs> Wow. Right. I ended up in Jim Carroll's hotel room at like midnight as I was <laughs> conducting this interview and he was getting interviewed by the PBS and, oh and they, they spiked the story. I wrote it so badly that I somehow took what I just told you and made it unreadable and was like, <laughs> I, this is not a good way to start my career. <laughs> I have to be my first critical essay in grad school. And my advisor said, and it kind of happened more than once. And she was like, okay, if you really love something, she's like, you don't do a very good job of like breaking it down and studying because you like love it so much. And I think sometimes you have those experiences when we're just so like outside of ourselves. And it's hard to believe that you're in this moment that it's like now how, do I, how in the world am I going to make this real too? So, so I understand that like that, that age that sort of not starstruck, but just like, again, it's like it's from another world. Yes. Yes. Like right. something, yeah, somebody who is more than human is somehow in your presence. It, it, that, and it is, it, it sounds so silly probably to say it that way, but I just remember feeling that, that there are like, there are mortals and then there are just sort of these, the extra. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And they're all on our bookshelves. And why am I, why are they talking to me? Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So as you get close to finishing up college, like, do you have a plan? I know you said you were a nerd and like you wanted to, did you, were you going straight to grad school or like, what were you doing? No, I did need to get out and like start making some kind of a living for myself into taking my really marketable poli side English degree. I went to Capitol Hill and um, I was working part time for the time it has a different name now, but it was the WashingtonPost.com. But I was working in kind of their PR for the startup side. And this was uh, 2000. And then I got a job working for a Nebraska congressman 
um, as his press secretary. I was supposed to be an assistant, oh, wow. but the moment he was supposed to be the real one, um, had something come up and at the last minute said uh, she couldn't take the job. And my boss was like, well, we'll save the taxpayers some money and you could do her job at your you know, starting level salary. And so I just jumped right in uh, at this 22 and I was a press secretary and I was learning how to write in the voice of a you know 70 year old former football coach. Um, so I, again, it was like that fictional training I didn't even know I was having. Holy that. shit! <laughs> it was crazy. That had to be a surreal because then you're in the room, but you're actually in the room, like you're part of the room that other people are looking at now. Yes, and it was one of those definitely like fake it till you make like fake the confidence until you have any sense of feeling like. I have any right to be here. Um, and Capitol Hill is one of those bizarre, truly bizarre places that people from the age of 22 to 31, 32 wield inordinate power compared to what they would be doing anywhere else in any other you know, industry or, or avenue in the rest of the country. And so it was just a mind blowing few years to be there and to see how how our government is run and to learn again from these incredibly smart people, but who were just, you know, I was one of the younger ones, but I was not, you know, you have an office full of interns, you have pages, you have all of these people um, supporting the the congressmen and the senators and the committees. Yeah. And it was, it was like drinking from a fire hose of learning just so much. Yeah. Where if you fuck up, literally the whole country might know who you are. Yeah. 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 That's never, it's never good. How long did you do it? I was there for um, almost four years. I feel like that's like a, that's about a time, right? Like it, it was, it was at that point you, you sort of the, the turn happens, like people who become either like a career staffer and then, a right. career staffer and then become lobbyists and stuff, or they want to run themselves. It's a term or two. And then they make that commitment. You either move, you know, I was, it was, he was a freshman congressman that I worked toward you move to a Senator's office and thing. And I just realized I, I loved the work that I was doing. I really liked the person that I worked for and who I worked with, but that I was not a political animal at all. And in that part of it, the kind of party politics for me was just not my, there are people that that just energizes to no end. I was not that person. I loved, I, what I realized I loved about it was trying to think about how to be um, a third district Nebraskan, right? Which is in Nebraska, People from the third district out west, they call Omaha back east. Like it's a very different. And when I'd answer the phone, they'd be like, oh, I can tell you're from Omaha. And I'm like, you can <laughs> just by how I answer the phone. Um, but practicing getting outside myself, whether I'm helping to draft an op-ed or a letter, you know, or something like that. I loved all of those things. And I loved meeting the constituents and traveling the district. But um, I was like, I got to find a job that, I can do things like that, but it doesn't involve the the political. Yeah. For me. Yeah. I was in that band. That was 20 years ago. So yeah. I can't even imagine what it is like to work there now. It's also, I got to think emotionally exhausting because yeah. you just have to be aware of at every moment. Yeah. And there's stakes. If, I remember that I had a, one of our chiefs of staff was an attorney and I think I, again, I was 22 and I, I think it was equality and parity. And she's like, those are not synonymous in the law. And I was like, okay, good. Tell me, help me, help me understand this. But, and it was like, thank goodness that was on her first edit, you know, and then it would go to the boss. It was like, this is caught very early in a red line version, but um, learning the difference in a word that to me are synonyms, they're not, you know, yeah. in, in 
in, in agricultural language or in farming yeah. language. Well, and like the few times I, I, I dated a woman in DC and so I'd go out there and, you know, she did, she didn't work in politics, but she worked in, in, in sort of adjacent to it. Right. And, you know, we'd be sitting in a bar and it's just like, you couldn't even just say something because you don't know who's around like that. So it's not even just the, your job, like your job is that district, the whole district. Yeah. And you think of DC being a big place. It's, it's not when you work in, when you're working in, in anything tied to the, tied to the capital. No. It's very small. <laughs> yeah. So when you, you, you decide like, not my thing, that's gotta be a little disorienting to be in your like mid twenties and be like, well, shit, uh, I got this degree. I'm not going to do this stuff. Uh, now what? Yeah. The, the good news <laughs> about once you work in on Capitol Hill, you, you meet all kinds of people that I never, you know, I never have come into contact with. Um, and so I interviewed with, um, I moved to Virginia and I interviewed with a railroad that was based here at the time that had worked with a big railroad that ran through Nebraska, kind of the other side of the, um, Transcontinental Railroad, and I ended up working in sales and marketing and logistics, which I couldn't believe I ended up doing any kind of logistics work. Um, that possibly moved me more into the sales and marketing because I was better. I was better at that. Yeah, they heard about the math and the physics stuff, and they're like, "We're gonna do like, this other I said, thing." I don't know. I said I can speak. I said, "Did you see my entrance? Like my entrance?" <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I can coordinate my kid's schedule, but not whatever horseshit yeah. you guys are doing. Oh yeah, I was moving like transformers and airplane parts. I was like, guys, I said this is really this that's is crazy. Like, oh. That also had to be a moment where you're like, "How did I end up here?" That's so much of my entire career has been that way. And it's just on it. How do I get here? And okay, how do I make sure I'm asked to stay? Like that's always, how do I make myself as useful as I can and just not screw up? Um, and at least not screw up in an irredeemable way. So were you guys uh, like lower, lower middle class, like upper working class? Like that sounds like a class thing there. I guess. So my, my parents definitely were, and they were raised um, in a very working class family. So yeah. my parents, just kind of had some astronomical, like my dad is the, a force of nature and they really took on the world. And so I was, I was raised with an ethos yeah. um, that they were raised with very much so. And I, in a lot of ways, I really hope my kids that that stays with them, that this idea that, uh, I don't know, we're not entitled to be anywhere for any reason. I mean, yeah. you know, anybody else is just as good or just as smart or could do, you know, and so how do you make yourself indispensable? And that was always something that I was raised with. And it's like, so I should do that um people at least want to ask you to leave <laughs> yeah well i say that because that was my dad used to say that we were by the end you know when i went away i think we were probably lower work lower middle class and to this day i always tell people man be nice and do every job <laughs> yeah and also only because at some point especially i think like watching people learn that over covid is that we while we've become so much more fragmented in a lot of ways, we've also had to become more independent on our own because we can't just ask somebody in your office, hey, can you fix this? Or if you, something goes wrong in your home, someone's not always available to come and do it. So there's, there's so much practical value too, to like just gobbling up the experience of whether it's something you're just dying to do or something that you'd really rather not have as part of your cadre of responsibilities. Yeah. And it, it also is the, I don't think that I'm too good for any job. You know, I have, you know, a couple degrees and I've worked in some nice places, but like we're all one or two bad things away from being at the bottom. And if you think you're above that, you know, I'm probably you're not hanging around you. 
it's gonna, yeah, you're not, you're no fun to be with and you're probably gonna have a pretty serious comeuppance, you know, headed your way. No, I, yeah, I don't, I don't. But even if you don't, like, I just don't want to be around it. I'm like, that's, I can't, that's, I mean, I I don't say people are bad people, but I'm like, that's just not a thing I can be around because that doesn't make sense to me. Nope, I agree. So when do you decide to be a writer? (laughs) When you're at the, when you're at the- I was working on the railroad. I was like, you can't say that, but I was like, I really want to say that. <laughs> well, and it's funny because you know I dug in. I loved like the railroad is its own strange little world, uh, like politics. And um, I enjoyed learning from train masters all that. Well, I was traveling all the time for work, like most of every week. And um, I discovered I was pregnant, and I was like, okay, this job is gonna things are gonna have to change because I, you know, I, I don't know how to be a parent and be gone constantly. And um, so that was I tried to work a little bit part-time, tried to do some other things. And I realized I've just got to find the trajectory of my career there. It was like, I'd kind of hit that wall in DC. I sort of hit the same thing in this kind of sales and marketing job at, at the railroad. Um, and I decided after having two girls that I was finally going to like embrace this thing that I've always been throwing myself in the way of, this writing that I always found a way to do. Um, and I was going to do it for myself. And so I started taking classes um at there's an amazing writer center here in norfolk virginia i'm incredibly fortunate that we have it i felt like i was being followed around by these little strips of neon paper for the three or four years that i lived in norfolk before i started taking classes and um i just fell in love with the act of writing again and then after a few years of doing that i decided to apply to graduate school and i went through a low residence mfa program, um, which was exactly what I needed because I knew I needed to learn how to be a full-time writer inside my life, um, yeah. not, you know, kind of go away and, and dive into it. And, yeah. um, and that was, where was it? Which school? Goddard college in Vermont. Oh, yeah. I have yeah. a, yeah. I know somebody that it, went there. It was amazing. And one of my, um, mentors uh, and, and advisors at Goddard also teaches here at old dominion, which is so funny. But, oh, like, you know, there's a program like really close to home. Um, I was really, I really wanted this. I didn't want to send myself to school and spend as amazing as I would be 10, 12 hours a day doing the schoolwork. I wanted to figure out again, like to be in my life and to write. It just made me become really in tune with what my process was and recognizing too that my process is going to change as my life changes and say, sure. okay, like, I know I can't get my work done at 2 a.m. So I'll be delirious, but I can function at 4 a.m. if I yeah. go to sleep at midnight and I can do my work then. Um, and that, so that for me was, it was incredible. And it was like this first set of enforced deadlines. Somebody's caring that I'm writing. Yeah. Now I know I'm not going to have that once I'm done with grad school, but at least hopefully that muscle memory of I have to have this many pages and read this many books will kind of stick with me was my, was my hope. And it seemed to work out. Well, and I also, you know, what I've, I don't have an MFA, but like what I've heard from people is that a big part of it is just sort of what you said, which is it's the reading and it's the being around other people who are doing this. It's not even necessarily the deadlines and stuff because not everything you write in graduate school becomes a thing, but the reading and the relationship and the sort of, this is what a writer is. I am a writer is the thing that I've heard from people. I think that's absolutely true. And I was so lucky to come home and still have a writing community here because that was how I saw some people that they would leave Vermont and they'd be like, I'm going into this kind of like creative wasteland of, of their daily life. And I, I had people who cared. And then 
after I got my degree, I started teaching. And that was been an incredible thing because you have students who are help keeping you, they, they care what you're doing. They want to know that you're doing your work they're aspiring to do. And having, yeah, having a community of people who know what the solitary part of the writing is like, <laughs> and then if they want, you know, the publishing side of the life is like, and all of those things and just trying to keep yourself in the, in that game because nobody, it's bizarre. It doesn't make sense to anybody who's not doing it or working through it. I, I got to think it's a little bit like being in DC or working on a railroad. Like, yeah, you know, the particularistic things of life. It's one of the reasons I like nonfiction. I tell people all the time, part of the reason I do this is because I do this in the real world. No, I think that it's like, it's to me, it's like the mundane and the details that that's what builds a story for me. So if we're thinking you have to have this, something that has to be about this giant thing or someone has to have lived this giant life to be able to write, I think you're looking way too high and too lofty. Yeah. I said, look at the details because that's where, that's where all the tells are. You know, that's where the good stuff is, I think. Yeah, it's, you know, I, I sometimes feel sad that I, I didn't get an MFA or I didn't learn, I don't have tools, you know? I mean, I've just sort of developed them over time but I never was given to him. So I feel a little bit like I'm doing surgery with a butter knife. Right. And I'm like, <laughs> Oh, you know, like this is going to be a little rough around the edges and like, you know, somebody else could do it better, but I also know I have that other stuff. Right. Yeah. And like, and the curiosity is hard to teach. Just the stick to the grit I mean, that that's going to come from who you are. No one's going to teach you to stick through rejection and, or even just, just anything, editing, the revision process, all yeah. of those things. You have to have that kind of drive, I think, inside. Yeah. So we just got a few minutes left. So when does the first book come out? Like how long after you do the, do you do Goddard? Uh, gosh, I graduated from Goddard in 2014 and my first book came out in 2017. So that's not too bad. But so how yeah. long was the low residency program? It was two years. So Were you I was working there on 2014. Were you working on the book there or did it? I was. Yeah. I was one of those, it was that rare story that now it looks almost unrecognizable. Well, sure. Of course thesis, it does. Yeah. But my thesis turned into my first published book. Was yeah. that the first time you had started tinkering with it or did you have, did you bring that into the program? Yeah, that was what I thought was cool about the Goddard program is that you are really there. I mean, I don't know how you would like vet this, but you were supposed to start something completely new. And I wanted to do that. I had the first novel that I'd written that it helped me get into grad school in a box. I knew no one would ever like yeah. it's where it belonged. Yeah. Um, and so I really wanted the pressure of starting something brand new. Sure. Yeah. So I did. Yeah. Breach um, started there. I can't remember what, I think I just called it working manuscript for the longest time until one of my advisors was like, you need to give this thing a title. Um, so that's 2017 and then it was another five years. Until, I think I'll be faster this next time. Uh, so, but so I've like the reason I was asking is I tell people it takes 10 years to publish a book. And you've either edited that book, if you've only written one, you've edited it like 10 times, or you got a book in a thing that nobody's ever going to see. And that was the trial run. And yes. now it's what are we going to do with it? Yeah, I always, I really feel like people should have like, I'd be happy to have an asterisk or something when they say like first novel. I'm like first novel and first novel published are so often not the same thing. No, not at all. Not, and even if it, again, even if, like you said, the, what you wrote the first time is almost unrecognizable. So really that's another book. Like, yeah, the thing, but you know, how many characters didn't make it from one to the other, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, how many new ones so i 
almost never read the books of people until after I've interviewed them for lots of reasons. But I, I got yours and I read it. And I'm telling you what, like I've read a shitload of stuff and I'm pretty good at understanding the mechanism of what's about to happen. And uh, I'm not going to spoil anything here, but like almost immediately I was like, oh, shit, this is not the book I thought it was. And then that happened like eight more times. And I, I told people like it was like a, going downhill on a roller coaster that never stopped. <laughs> it was just unrelenting. Uh, and it wasn't until I got to near the end, I sort of got to this point and I was like, oh, this is really clever. And this is really what the book is about. Like, that's really good. So Thanks. I know you don't know me and what I think doesn't matter, but I was like, ah, that was nifty what you did. <laughs> no, of course it matters. It's always, it's the weirdest, coolest thing to like interact about a book that you've written. You know, this feeling when somebody else has feelings about it, it's like so terrifying and wonderful all at the yeah. same time. So yeah, I enjoyed it. I know I said that twice, but like, it was really good. As you were writing it, what was that experience like? Cause that was your second one, right? Breach is the second one. Yes, which I was saying, like, it's uh, this was a, it's a it was a tough headspace. To yeah, be it was similar with my, my first book. Was a, a difficult type of tough headspace. Uh, this one is just uh, normally when I'm done because I spent it was five years I spent writing this book. Um, my characters are kind of like put them to put them to bed, put them to rest, and I'm still Marley is still haunting me. Jace is still haunting me, and I don't. And it's uh, it's very interesting. They become so vivid and real to me that it was it was a tough one and uh it's been tough to share it you know I live in a very military town and um, <laughs> very scared it I just it, did I get it did I get some of these things right and um it's been sad in a lot of ways like how it has the story has resonated with folks and I just I would have loved in a way for them to have said you know we don't know what this experience is like this doesn't sound right and instead I keep hearing that I know this person I know this guy I felt for this woman I felt for this guy and uh, I feel like I, I've met these people before and yeah. I mean, yes, there's nothing better that I can ask that. And now I want to like find a way to say, how do we, how do we help? Yeah. It was interesting. I did not read that as a military book and it may be because I know a lot of people that were in it and I'm like, well, yeah, that's that. Yeah, that happens. I read it as a book more about, I think I can say this without spoiling about poverty. Yeah. Yeah. That's how, no, that's same and I think that was what I thought you know, for me it was Marley's story always always uh, you know even I, I write um first boy like first person point of view for my characters even when it's going to become like I knew it was all going to be Marley's voice but I wrote from Jace's too but yeah I didn't think of it as a military novel either it just happened to be the military elements and I you know in the town that I, where it's set is is heavily influenced yeah. all that important to me because that's how else is Marley going to meet this person and how else is where would she be that that would happen yes as someone that knows the machine, I'm like, didn't see the machine. You know, like <laughs> I didn't see that's where it was taking me. Yes. So good for you. Thanks. Yeah. I've told everybody though, like, I mean, be in a good headspace if you read this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's why I don't read them because I'm like, well, we'll talk for 30 minutes about the machine and what you did. And I'll be like, good for you. <laughs> uh, so you're working on a, th so we got two five year books, right? That's about, yeah. um, what are we thinking for the next one? No, I think I'm going to have it out on submission probably in the next six months. So it'll be, it's done. I, yeah, I really was into this one. It was, uh, I had some weird stuff to kind of work through after my first book that was not present this time. And uh, so I just was all in and I'm excited about it. It's a little 
quite different than the other two. So I think we'll be another five years. Yes. It will, it will or will not. It will, will not be another five years. No way. I know my family's like, we gotta do this a little more, a little more often. <laughs> is it in the same vein or are you, is it in a whole different, did you go in a different place? It's a little bit more, I think, of a straight up psychological thriller. I've always worked mm -hmm. kind of with some of the psychological aspects, but um, no, I'm calling it like a coming of middle age story. <laughs> definite psychological thriller so i'm, I'm excited about it <laughs> well at 50 i tell people it's like 45 everything broke i'm a that coming of middle age i feel like is exactly a thing yeah, <laughs> yeah, <around the> bend. <laughs> yeah. uh it'll be fine <laughs> <laughs> well listen you are delightful this has been a lot of fun um i, like I really enjoyed the book and uh i'm looking forward to the next one maybe we can do this again that's great um, and good luck on the ultra marathon. Thanks. I know. Good luck. I hope, I hope you guys have a great trip to Virginia beach. Hey, if there's a beach and I get to uh, have coffee and watch the sun come up, it'll be a good trip to the beach. Hard to beat. <laughs> have a good day. Thanks. You too. Take care. Well, there you have it. That was Kelly Sokol. Her book, Breach, is out now. And I know I said it, uh, and I actually had to edit it out of the program because I said it like nine times. It Breach is really good. It's one of the few times that I have read the book before the interview. Just happened to be that way. Uh, and it's super good. And uh, Virginia Beach in ultramarathoning. Uh, you know, it's, uh, it's a lot of stuff I like to talk about. So I hope you enjoyed the conversation as much as I loved having it. Before we get out of here, Remember those things we ask at the top of the show. Tell your friends about us. Email, in person, text, TikTok, however you want to do it. Tell your friends about us. And leave us a review, either over at Apple Podcasts or Facebook under the Reviews tab. Don't forget, we are part of the Solid Listen Podcast Network. There are 11 other shows, pop culture, all kinds of stuff um, in the area of pop culture and arts. You can check all those out. Apple Podcasts has a subscription for $4.99, um, or wherever you listen to podcasts, you can just search for the Solid Listen Podcast Network. Uh, and don't forget the show that started it all, uh, Mother May I Sleep With Podcast, which has a host. She is our podcast queen. Her name is Molly MacLear. Don't forget, we got three programs. You just listen to The Jam. That's out every Wednesday. And then the after party is our storytelling Q&A. It's a weird-ass thing. It's great. It's I know I made it, but uh, it's entertaining as hell. Uh, and Jam Sessions, which is our nonfiction discussion that we do with nonfiction writers about issues that impact the world today. Those are out on Mondays and Fridays for now. Eventually, they'll just be out on Fridays. But we have two to three shows a week right now. The best way to not miss anything we do, get yourself subscribed wherever you listen to podcasts. And remember, you can always catch us on Twitter and Instagram at The Writer's Jam. Until the next time, I will see you around the internet. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it. Or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. 
Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz and how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts.